Thanks for tuning in. This is the Beyond the Edge podcast, episode number six. For those who are tuning in for the first time, we're a team of stock market enthusiasts specifically hunting growth stocks under a $10 billion valuation. We're not looking for 8% returns. We're hunting truly game-changing companies that could grow exponentially. We record every Thursday and release a new episode every single Sunday. If you're looking to make money in the markets and hunt down some big winners, then subscribe and follow along. Please also share with others and comment or message us anytime with feedback. We absolutely love that. This episode was one of my favorites to make, covering everything from a complex acquisition by a high-tech satellite manufacturer to an aggressively expanding chain of bowling alleys. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Welcome back to the Beyond the Edge podcast. This is episode six, My How Time Flies. I've got my two co-hosts with me, Declan O'Flaherty, Mr. Fundamentals, and of course, Peter Palarchio, our trend tracker in residence. I'm your host, Small Cap Kev. Uh, three good stories for you this week. Uh, in fact, we did a little bit of a pivot and actually adjusted one of the stories because of some new information bringing this to light. So I'm going to kick right into it. I want to start off by talking about a brand that is perhaps nostalgic for some viewers, uh, which you will have noticed in from the public markets has actually disappeared. So we're talking about Dish Networks. This is a company, I believe it was founded way back in the 80s. Uh, satellite TV was obviously a, a gargantuan industry for quite a while. Uh, Today, not so much. There is a recent acquisition, however, or whether you want to call it an acquisition or a merger of equals, uh, EchoStar and Dish have actually essentially merged, um, which is not ironic, but uh, further back in the early 2000s, these companies were one. They split apart. They've now rejoined forces. That's the first story we're going to talk about. Second, we're going to dig a little bit into Ripple. Uh, if you're familiar with the XRP token, the CEO had some choice words uh, this week. And then finally, we're going to finish off with <laughs> by talking about something that makes me think of Mr. Fundamentals, bowling alleys. But it's far more interesting than I'm making it sound right now because this is actually a stock that's, upon further research, may actually be worthy of a buy. So boys, we're gonna kick it off with Echo Star, uh, the acquisition with Dish, and a whole bunch of financial, wow, what's the word I use for this? Uh, financial maneuvering that is quite complex. So Mr. Fundamentals, what do you think about this transaction? You're probably too young to even know what Dish Networks even was, <laughs> but what do you think when you see this kind of uh, merger of equals? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it obviously kind of looked like uh, Dish itself was struggling. Um, you know, they had built up a big position in the 5G boom and took on a lot of debt as a result of that. Um, maybe that hasn't translated as well as they wanted it to. And so now with this acquisition, they're essentially trying to turn things around by partnering up with EchoStar once again. Um, you know, realistically, it's... The whole, the whole deal seems like a conundrum in itself. Um, just a lot of complicated pieces to the puzzle. Um, but on top of that, you know, Echo Star has built up a good position. You know, they, they have decent capital. They have about 1.6 or sorry, uh, 2 billion in cash and just about only like 1.6 billion in debt. So, you know, does management have a plan? Have they clearly evaluated the situation? 
and know that they can unlock this value within Dish. Yes, um, but the way they went about it is probably not the the best way in terms of uh, convincing shareholders that things are all right. So I'm uh, I'm definitely hesitant on it all, but it it's a crazy one nonetheless, and we'll see we'll see how it pans out. Complex is an understatement on these transactions. We could spend an entire podcast digging through these. We'll get a little bit into it, but perhaps not not too deep. Pete, mm. how, how well do you know Dish and Satellite? Uh, maybe this is an opportunity I, for old man Pete to give us his take on uh, <laughs> what was a booming industry. I was industry. about to say, thanks, thanks, <laughs> thanks for um, dating myself there. I would have to say, yeah. Um, do I remember growing up when someone said they had a satellite dish? That was a pretty big deal. You wanted to hang out at that guy's house. They were getting movies. They were getting sports teams that you didn't even know existed. You were probably getting bowling that wouldn't have been on TV regularly. So I think that that's interesting in a sense. I mean, as a company as a whole, I, for for my investment analysis, I have access to about 20 tools that I use um, to investigate consumer behaviors, um, which way industries are going, how people are making decisions, all of those great things. I don't need to use one of those 20 to tell you about the future of satellite dishes and what's going on there. I do not think that this is something that has an overly bright future, even as older people like me are, you know, in their market. I'm I'm not sure exactly how they're picturing this as a, as a future um, in terms of a, a growing market. I, I don't see it. No. Well, it's interesting because as I said, these companies used to be together. They split apart so that they could focus on their individual strategies. They've brought them back together for a lot of reasons. And I seriously mean it when I can say we could spend an entire podcast on this. Some people are calling it a basically an equity raise in disguise. It's no secret dish needed money. Um, they are under a crippling amount of debt. Uh, to the tune of like 20, 21 billion, blah, 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 billion dollars. And this is a high risk company. So this is right, right in like, you know, corp between corporate to even junkier bond. Uh, I don't even know if it's officially a, a junk bond if, bond if it's below investment grade. Um, but with yields pushing 10% on what they're pitching now, it certainly sounds quite junky to me. And part of the reason for this acquisition is Echostar is a bit bit sexier of a business more it's focused on satellites which is obviously a little trendier right now they have ip around that and they have a lot of cash i believe it's somewhere to the tune of close to two billion dollars of cash that dish desperately needs um they have a lot i believe it's five out of their 20 21 billion dollars of debt that's coming due in the next i think it's 24 25 like right around the corner and they're looking to do some really complicated well, what to me feels like a really complicated, essentially restructuring where they're switching some of the debt from Dish over to EchoStar, moving some of their spectrum uh, ownership from Dish to EchoStar, then uh, holders of the remaining debt now no longer will have uh, a claim on that spectrum asset. So that's a little bit controversial. I The best way I can describe how to best understand this is for for one... Comment below if you're somebody who looks at watching EchoStar, you follow Dish, and you want us to dig up, uh, dig into this transaction, we can. That's going to take a full episode, and it's going to look like, imagine that picture where it's that guy on the wall and all the, the red lines connecting everything. Like, that's what this transaction is. It is complicated with all kinds of new subsidiaries, so that's not for conversation right now. 
But their whole idea is that these merger of equals of companies with what seems to be fairly complementary services, you know, one's terrestrial based 5G, the other one's more focused on uh, satellites. So there should be some synergy there to create like a very wide coverage. But this transaction, this stock is anything but a no-brainer, anything but a no-brainer. I don't know if Mr. Fundamentals, did you want to dig into the the fundamentals of this deal and see how it looks? I mean, yeah, like from my standpoint as an investor, it always raises a red flag, actually for two reasons. One, when you build a complicated structure that isn't clearly outlined to shareholders, it, it should raise those alarm bells and you thinking, okay, maybe they're hiding something under the surface um, or trying to really like dilute their problems so that it isn't easy to pinpoint exactly what it is. But on top of that, when you screw over stakeholders and in this case, like it's the creditors of Dish, um, you know, that's never a good sign. You always want to build strong relationships with those people you are building a business around. And in this case, as you mentioned, Kev, when they're essentially taking away key assets from these creditors and saying, oh, by the way, well, we'll offer you something else instead. This is clearly not what they initially signed up for. And so now they're like, mm-hmm. well, should we should we send you a letter uh, to Dish and basically be like, hey, like you better default and give you what we initially promised. Otherwise, like what the heck's going on here? And then just mm-hmm. on top of that all, like now with uh, Echo Star, like adding this new offering um, to to these previous creditors as well as uh, like new creditors, um, you know, they're, they're banking on these guys accepting this new deal. But what if they don't? What if they instead they say, well, mm-hmm. no, well, let, let's stick with the original game plan. Like we want what you promised. All these uncertainties surrounding this business and on top of it, not necessarily like, sure, it has a good cash position and, and EchoStar itself doesn't have, uh, well, I mean, to be fair now with the merger, it's a bit different, but um, just the debt as well. Like it, it's not a convincing play where the business fundamentals are that great and, and you know, will they turn it around? It, it seems like they have a plan, but how well will their strategy go and pan out? That is a question that remains and just makes me want to sit on the sideline rather than making any moves on this play. From specifically an acquisition standpoint, it actually looks pretty compelling. Um, if I was looking at certain ratios of Dish before the acquisition, seeing things like, well, Dish was literally priced to go bankrupt is what it looks mm-hmm. like to me. Um, I almost thought it was a typo when I first saw it, but price to sales was 0.1. <laughs> so that wow. if I'm understanding that correctly, and that's not a mistake, which, you know, they're trading at what, 10%, the market value is 10% of what the revenue is. Now, mm-hmm. that story looks a lot different when you start considering the enterprise value, because then you add on 21 billion of debt. But yeah. cheap by any stretch, price to earnings, 1.6. Um, and they actually spit off over a, they were spitting off over a billion dollars in, in net. So I can see what's attractive mm-hmm. about this business. But even with that level of, of, you know, cash flow, these guys were 14 million subscribers in 2020, uh, in 2014. Fast forward to 2023, they're below nine. So this is a yeah. business that's just losing revenue. It's losing, uh, customers, losing revenue. So how low does this go? low as you said i love the model if you know consumers hadn't had a drastic shift in behavior if streaming didn't become more widespread as networks grow and strength of you know the ability to consume content at home has been more diversified than ever 
I mean, how many people of those 9 million are even going to kind of stick around? And, you know, what, what, what is their offering? I think in, in terms of consumer behavior and consumer content for live TV, the things that matter right now are, are sports and award shows. Like beyond that, you know, the, the top 10 kind of live programs aren't what they used to be in terms of capturing eyeballs. So I, I don't see how this becomes sustainable with sub the subscriber model. For sure, it's a great model if you're kind of at that threshold where you're going to be continually profitable because the added costs are probably nil. I mean, the cost of the hardware is probably paid off within months of a subscriber keeping it. And maybe their own rental program or they bought it outright. And then, you know, the, the content distribution fees that are going back to whatever networks you have a deal with, that's an easy model to kind of work around, but it, it relies on, you know, a certain amount of subscribers and that's going the wrong way and it's going to continue to do so. It's certainly, it's a cash cow, but it's, it's a business in decline. I, they seem to bet the farm on a 5G network, which is looking like a worse and worse decision by the day, given the amount of debt that's they've taken on and given the fact that they're not even done. Um, nobody seems to have a, a really rock solid answer that I've seen in terms of the capex that'll be required to finish the network. But some analysts are thinking it's seven, eight, nine billion or more. And they don't like they're the market is not going to allow them to raise that money, at least not in the terms that would be attractive to them. So yeah. where do you go from here? And then what happens with there's a lot of competition out there. And that's for EchoStar as well. They've got a they've got a good positioning in the satellite space. They're getting, you know, involved in the airline Wi-Fi um, aspect of the business, which I think is attractive. But what happens when Starlink IPOs in the next year or two and just does that just eat not only your business, but your potential investors as well? Um, mm -hmm. It remains to be seen. Guys, let's, uh, I think we've, we've kind of squeezed as much juice out of EchoStar. Like I said, if you're watching this, you want us to go deeper into these transactions. Read the news releases uh, so that I don't have to speak it out loud to you. Uh, they're complicated. We could get into it only if there's interest. Moving on, we're going to actually talk about crypto. We haven't talked about this in a long time. Mm -hmm. Probably the least crypto of the cryptos, talking about Ripple. Um, CEO, their CEO, Brad, uh, had some choice words for some U.S. regulators, the head of the SEC, basically calling him a political liability. These, as you know, the recent news is that certain Bitcoin ETFs have been approved after a lot of foot dragging from the regulators. Many people are excited about this. Um, there are certain that aren't. You know, Brad, uh, I don't actually have a quote on his direct views on this. But Ripple is unlike, is fairly unlike any of the other cryptocurrencies. Many hardcore enthusiasts would actually say it's, you know, it's virtually not decentralized or not nearly as decentralized. Um, Pete, I know you've been looking at a lot into Ripple. I, historically, maybe you haven't been a huge crypto guy, but you've, you've been digging into it. What are some of your findings? Let's talk about Ripple and the XRP token. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, one, the direct quote from the CEO was calling him a uh, political liability and that he was not <laughs> acting in the long-term interest of the economy. He tweeted that and then the direct quote of being a political liability was from an interview where he is currently in Davos hanging out with mm -hmm. a lot of elites. So that should be uh, interesting. I think like circling back, um, the timing is really interesting that we have a Bitcoin ETF. And I think, you know, when you're talking about what the appetite was for something like this, um, 
you're looking at the people behind it. You have BlackRock and Fidelity behind these ETFs. This is no joke. This is not small potatoes. In terms of volume, the first three days of trading for the Bitcoin ETF was uh, $10 billion. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of volume. So yeah. let's put that into comparison of the amount of ETFs that launched in 2023, which was around 500 total ETFs. The number one single day mover of that was 45 million in volume. Wow. So, yeah. That's no uh, sorry, uh, sorry, four, Yeah. Yeah. Collectively, those 500 in a day did 450 million in volume. <laughs> so we have, um, yeah. A monster. Of those 500, <laughs> of those 500 it, yeah. that launched, right? Not ETFs yeah. as a whole or, you know, some of those really big ETFs that are like the S&P 500 ETF or something along those lines. But yeah, this is this is a really big deal for consumers. So mm -hmm. when you have, you know, the CEO of Ripple and XRP calling out the SEC that this isn't benefiting the economy, you know, maybe there's some weight for that because this is mm -hmm. a, a new way of capitalization. There's a, there's a lot of uses for crypto and the SEC was kind of you know, a little bit lagging on this. And I think that was maybe a bit of his issue. And then, you know, the lawsuit that was going on here as well. I don't know if you guys had put had followed up on that, but this was a long standing lawsuit between the SEC, well, litigation, uh, however you want to talk about it, but litigation between mm -hmm. the SEC and Ripple that is still continuing to unfold. But there was certainly a big precedent set where it had labeled the cryptocurrency and the raise that XRP did as not a security. So mm -hmm. it was not subject to those issues when it was oh. sold to retailers. However, when it was sold to institutions, it was. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how this uh, court in New York declared things. So that's another yeah. thing that, again, that, like I said, there's, there's so much to unpack in, in one tweet. Um, with what's going on with the ETF. And in addition, the SEC's Twitter getting hacked, which is also what yeah. rushed the news. <laughs> Gosh, man, so, that is wild. I mean, I mean, there's just so much to, to see. You got a guy in Davos bumping shoulders with who knows who uh, in an election year, because this is the other kind of, you know, Easter egg in that tweet that he's a political liability. So mm -hmm. that's really interesting as well. You have an election year, you have other people chiming in on this as well. You have the fact that there is a huge appetite for, you know, um, an ETF, a Bitcoin ETF, a crypto ETF, like that, that's, you know, a, a lot being said. And then, you know, um, when Gensler kind of comes back and says what his job is, it was that he has to protect investors and, you know, create vehicles for capitalizations of businesses. So that was mm -hmm. his hesitation in crypto due to its innate volatility. Mm -hmm. So there's a yeah. lot going on there. And then, you know, I'd love to hear from you guys some thoughts, but I have some thoughts too of, well, how much more volatile is a Bitcoin ETF going to be than just the S&P? So what do you guys think? Mm -hmm. Mr. Fundamentals, far away. Yeah, well, I'll uh, kind of chime in too, just Put some perspective on uh, Ripple to kind of echo your sentiment there, Pete. Um, you know, so as you mentioned, Kev, they're uh, less decentralized than a lot of platforms, and and primarily, like what Ripple is trying to do is facilitate um, business uh, for enterprises um, and using those blockchain solutions. So they're really catering to that business side of things as a you know method of transaction, but also storehold of um, 
wealth uh, through crypto assets and then being able to target that. So just in regards to like Ripple CEO's comments, I think there's like truth to both sides um, in what is coming of this story. And, you know, first and foremost, like the SEC's job is to protect American citizens from bad actors and risky assets. And, you know, even though a lot of these cryptocurrencies aren't dubbed as securities, they trade like it because people are essentially trying to bank on these assets, appreciating in wealth and then potentially selling them for a return. Um, but on top of that, you know, like the past couple of years obviously haven't been that uh, like a promising sign for crypto, let's say, you know, there, there's obviously been like the FTX and Binance scandals. Then there's been a bunch of major crypto hacks where hundreds of millions of dollars were stolen. There's been pump and dump scams. And then there's even like management, um, you know, acting in dubious ways, even regarding what happened with Ripple there, where essentially uh, members of their executive team had sold off uh, XRP tokens without disclosing it to the public. So, mm. you know, there's obviously controversy there, but, you know, also as Pete had mentioned, there, there is a lot of value that blockchain technology brings. And so I think it's important for the SEC here to understand that it, you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain is here to say here to stay. They have a lot of value. And so what they should be doing rather than trying, you know, for Gary Gensler, rather than him coming out and just being completely against these assets, they should be trying to find safe ways for users to be able to operate and use these assets in a way that, you know, really propels the economy to another level. Because, you know, being able to transfer um, assets and currency all over the world seamlessly and for a low cost is a major advantage and it's crazy that we even still have to pay like the conversion rates that we do um to banks in this matter so i think i think the big thing here is that you know there's there's obviously a lot of risks involved and the sec is responsible in protecting them but there's also um, many advantages to it and then just the last thing to add here is the only thing that I can kind of push back on Ripple is, you know, if I'm a business owner and I'm using this platform, well, if if XRP is trading on the public markets like it is and anyone can buy into it, well, it is very volatile and the price can be unpredictable. So if I'm here trying to do business transactions, I probably am not going to want to put my cash um, into something that isn't very stable because ultimately I want to know what uh, price I'm paying for something and getting in return. And it may potentially hurt XRP and Ripple's business if they, uh, you know, if they continue to trade on the public markets, but that's another story. So it's a, you know, mm -hmm. crazy story, mm -hmm. but I think that, I think there's truth to both sides. I'll give credit to Ripple. I think they've always been one of my favorite tokens and, and companies in general um, mm -hmm. for a few reasons. Like number one, in defense of those who are diehard cryptocurrency enthusiasts, it's usually less about efficiency gains and more about independence, right? They want they want a currency that's you know can't be seized by government. It it allows for privacy, ironically privacy and transparency at the same time. <laughs> that's another story. Um, but what I like about Ripple and the XRP token is that they took a very practical business focused stance on how they're going to build their company out. So you look at, you know, in terms of decentralization, no, it's, it's not nearly as decentralized as other, as other um, currencies, cryptocurrencies. There's a, a limited number of nodes. They have to be approved by Ripple. Um, 
So certainly not as decentralized. It's much more corporate. But you look at the time that a, a like a transaction time, Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain on average is about 10 minutes for every new block to be added. For right. a currency, that's useless. <laughs> and it also, the transaction fee fluctuates quite significantly, reaching peaks, peak around, I think it was 60 or $70 back in the day. Even in recent memory, back in December, it was hovering around the $30 mark. It's about $10 now. As you can imagine, for any kind of day-to-day transaction, it's, it's useless. You're not going to buy a cup of coffee for $5, pay $10 in fees and then wait 10 minutes for it, uh, it to confirm so that the barista can start making it for you. It's, it's virtually useless yeah. from that point of yeah. view. Ripple transactions are not free, but close to free and they happen in seconds. So they're not as, as secure. It's not as you know true to the ethos of a cryptocurrency and how it's supposed to act. But from a business standpoint, it's incredibly useful. It, not as secure, being an obvious downside, but from a from a usefulness standpoint, it, it is fantastic. So I just wanted to make that comment about the XRP token and Ripple. The next right. thing I wanted to quickly touch on, though, is just the idea of a Bitcoin ETF. You know, is this mm-hmm. somebody something that people should consider buying? Is this a better way to hold cryptocurrency than it would be to do it the old-fashioned way and store it in a, a hardware wallet or on an exchange? which you shouldn't, but people do. Do either of you have a strong view on whether or not this is something people should consider putting in their portfolios? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it from appeals my, to me. My standpoint here is that, uh, you know, when, when I look at it, this is definitely a new channel and it improves accessibility of the asset overall. Um, again, it, it always comes down to, like for me with Bitcoin is what price are you willing to pay for it and what is it truly worth? And you know, could it go to a million? Well, there's sure, certainly arguments for it, but um, who's to say that it isn't worth $10 per uh, coin as well? So, um, you know, buying into this is potentially a great way for people that are uh, less sophisticated with the technology to gain exposure to it. Um, but in general, like, I think just as you would do with any business, it's really important that you study the asset and you try to understand it as best as you can. And I think what would happen in a lot of instances, if people do that, they're going to realize that it's more likely a better case to actually own uh, the coins through a hard wallet or um, possibly even through another channel like a, a digital wallet. But um, that that's kind of where I stand on it. It just, it just doesn't seem, you know, it, it, it sure it builds exposure, but... I think you would realize that if you really did believe and you had conviction in this asset, that you'd probably go a different route than the ETF channel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but as someone who just might want to partake in some of the action or the upside without necessarily all of the knowledge and trusting you know, some of these major institutions that are putting out these ETFs, I think it, it can be attractive. And I think you know, Mr. Fundamentals talking a little bit about how these things trade um, like equities, you're, you're absolutely right. Because when, you know, Ms. Mr. Gensler was talking about protecting the average, you know, American investor or anything, guys, there's plenty of, you know, companies that have done awful, awful things over the years, right? So this isn't necessarily anything new. Greed is a real thing. And and when I think of this trading, like, you know, an equity, it does. Like if we look at the S&P kind of peak trough and I think new peak might've been yesterday matched uh, the previous uh, peak in December, uh, end of December, 2021, the, the S&P trough was in October 22nd, 2022, and it had dropped 28%. 
that's a very significant drop for your top 500 publicly traded companies. And Bitcoin's previous peak was November 12th, 2021, which was, you know, about six weeks prior to the S&P. So they were definitely linked in the sense of where people are investing, where people think values are, which way maybe the economy and the markets are going. The only difference is the, you know, the trough for Bitcoin was the end of 2022 and its drop was 74% and it hasn't made all of that back. However, if you bought the dip to what it's trading at today, you'd be up 160%. Wow. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. That's not a bad, you know, 18 month return. I've got a few questions about the ETFs because for one, if you're not savvy with technology, buying cryptocurrency actually isn't the easiest thing in the world. Uh, mm. I can't imagine my parents doing that. And if they were to do it, let's just say, they'd certainly be keeping the their coins on on an online wallet, which we know is not, which is very prone to hacking. You don't actually technically, uh, logistically own the coins in that case. They're actually held on somebody else's private key. So yeah. that's a negative. The thing that's great about the ETFs is it certainly makes it much easier going through a traditional brokerage. I would be curious about tax implications. Um, is this, is a, is a, is a Bitcoin ETF, can that be put into a registered account for retirement? Can you get some kind of preferential tax treatment from that? I'd be, that's question number one. Question number two, um, is I'd be, I'd like to know a little bit more about the security. It, obviously, anything publicly traded available in the open markets is, is heavily scrutinized and comes under a lot of regulatory burden. Does that mean that we can feel assured that these companies are using appropriate cold storage for a large percentage of the coin and things of that nature for security? I'm going to go ahead and default to yes, though I, I haven't confirmed that with my, my own eyes reading anything. So those are kind of my two questions. I'm assuming both of those would probably be yes, in which case I think that is a pretty big green, pretty big, you know, bull indicator for the usefulness of an ETF like this. To your point though, Declan, if you are savvy enough to do it on your own, you might as well save the 1% management fee or whatever it is they're going to charge you because that's going to add up to a lot over time. So if you can just buy it yourself, put it onto a, a cold storage, like a hardware wallet, if you can do it yourself, that's probably going to be the best move but not for everybody. Yeah. Interesting, Kev. Yeah. I mean, you, you bring up a lot of good points. Um, three days in, what are the odds if we call our investment advisor right now that we could sell this, would know the answer to any of those things? Yeah, very unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll do yeah, that yeah. after this. I'm curious. I, I'm, I'm curious, yeah. We should put, in a, we should put in an order for it and see what happens and just ask yeah, those questions. Yeah. <laughs> And I think just like oh, one more one thing note, too, though. on the uh, yeah. B Bitcoin ETFs too, like you got to realize that not every uh, big institution is for this. Like Jamie Dimon, uh, the CEO of JP Morgan has been like very vocal about how he like hates cryptocurrency, despises Bitcoin. I'm pretty sure he was asked at Davos, like what he thought his thoughts were on the ETFs. And he's like, don't ask me about this shit again. Um so yeah. <laughs> JP Morgan has clearly taken a hard stance, but so is Vanguard. Like these are two major institutions. And um, so I think, again, just just in this, uh, you know, kind of controversial domain, you got to be able to look at both sides of the coin and really like analyze, well, why would these institutions be so hesitant or take such a hard stance against these ETFs as well? So Because um, they were know, cut out of the again, deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. perhaps, right? And it's um 
but but really again there, there's always like truth to both sides and so you have to be able to invert the story because um you know sure it may create more access and and there's been a lot of hype building up to it but is this sustainable and and again what what's the long-term outlook who cares really what happens in the next like six months um sure maybe you can bank on a potential profit and gain but like really the if it's going to ingrain itself in our economy and be a, like a stakeholder or a household name kind of as an asset, then there's got to be a lot more. And ultimately the network effect and the whole community has to be able to kind of embrace these ideas and, and push it to that next level where it's being used just beyond, um, you know, something to trade. Pete, final yeah. thoughts before we move on. Well, yeah, a couple of things. I think Declan, you obviously bring up a lot of great points about regulations, but the regulators, have they not had enough time? I believe Ripple's ICO was in 2013 for $1.3 billion and they wow. had litigation about it in 2020 and it's getting resolved, you know, recently, like they need to get yeah. it together on that side. And that's why, you know, yeah, sure. Vanguard can be up in arms about this thing, but I see the other side of guys, like if you're the CEO of Ripple, be like, we, we, we've been doing this for a, a decade. Get it together. What can we do? If you want to regulate our industry, learn about it and, and regulate it. Um, mm -hmm. If you can't, you know, what, what are you going to do? So I think that's something interesting. And then the other thing that I think we didn't touch on was the IRS actually removed the uh, notice of the $10,000 transaction um, with, with crypto, not having to notify them anymore. So... That's interesting. also interesting. It's it's not it's not that they gave up on it, but they are abandoning it in a sense until proper litigation is formed of what you need to report um, in terms of your your crypto transactions. So interesting. So let's make a complete U turn. <laughs> Go from bleeding edge tech cryptocurrency. We're going to talk about bowling. I, I couldn't believe it as well when I when <laughs> Declan pulled this article up. But this is a company, Bolero, great name, ticker bowl. Um, the more I looked into this, the more the more intrigued I was. And there's a lot to like about this story. It's funny. We started with Dish Networks talking about this high fixed cost, fairly, you know, predictable cash flow, but dying business. Then you go to Bolero, and that's exactly where my head went right away. High fixed cost, you know, capital likely capital intensive. It's not a growth sector. Bowling is certainly, you know, past its peak. But then I start digging in further and it's a really interesting stock trading just under $2 billion. The latest news was that they've added, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, is this their 20th new 20th bowling? 20th this year. 20th, 20th this year. And so bowling may not be a growth industry. Bolero is looking to grow in a dying industry. If you spend some yeah. time on their website or in their investor presentation, it'll probably start convincing you because you look at the before and after of Bowling Alley as they retrofit, it looks like a lot of fun. And I think there mm -hmm. is this demand for these in-person experiential activities. You know, Guys, we were talking about how Cineplex in Canada yeah. is doing their rec rooms. Uh, I don't know if this was a was just a, a AI image or if this was real news, but it looks like Netflix is is going to do something similar. So, do I see a business case to be made for Bolero just consolidating the bowling industry, making it a little bit cooler? Honestly, yeah, I could see it. Um, the the fundamentals of this are quite interesting, which is going to be the perfect segue to kick it off to Declan. Why don't you dig into what you saw when you first looked at the financial statements here? 
Yeah, no doubt. I mean, so, um, you know, first just like touching on the acquisitions itself, like I, th- I think my, my initial impression always when somebody or a company goes on a big buying spree like this is to be skeptical about how that growth will translate over the long run. And, you know, it is too early to tell how they play. Um, but, and, and that really just comes down to, you know, you're essentially buying all these assets and you hope they perform as you expect them to. But the real, like the reality of it is that probably some of these, um, you know, centers don't perform as well as they do. And then it's just a matter of like, how many did you overpay for then, um, in, in the, in the long run. So, but that being said, as you said, Kev, so this is a company that, um, you know, I, I never really suspected to be as impressive as it is, but it seems to be that management has done a really good job of allocating capital so far. Um, so they became pro- profitable for the first time last year. Uh, they since have doubled that uh, profits from 53 million to 105 million. And they also have grown revenue from 520 million in 2020 to 1.6 billion as of the trailing 12 months. And so they've done a good job growing there. Um, on top of that, as mentioned in the article, it's also been uh, ish- or pursuing a share buyback strategy. So they've been acquiring shares and taking them off the table. And if you take a quick glance at simply Wall Street's intrinsic value calculation of the company, it says that it's about 33% undervalued. So this essentially mm-hmm. means that management realizes the stock is undervalued based on what the business is really worth and they're taking full advantage of this and the the result of this is you know they're going to generate uh, higher returns for shareholders that have bought into the company and this is reflected by you know over the trailing 12 months they've had a return on equity of 78% which is insane you know like 10% is considered good most times and for them to be 78% really does show that Management knows what they're doing, and so there's reason to believe that these acquisitions are another part of that game plan and and something to you know look with a keen eye on and keep on your radar for sure. Okay, uh, I mean, interesting. I think a, a lot of great points for sure. However, I mm-hmm. probably tend to disagree with you that I don't like the way they're using the capital to go out and acquire. I think they have mistimed their aggression. Um, Kev, although you and me might think bowling was, you know, definitely a thing in the past, 2019 was probably the biggest year for bowling in the United States. It had really been, yeah, if you look at the numbers and interests of December 2019, huge year for bowling across the really? United States. Yeah, really, really big. It was kind of its peak interest. What? It has oh. not returned to those levels uh, post-COVID. And I think there's a lot of consumer thoughts of what it's like to share shoes and roll a ball and eat nachos and you know i think everyone has a new heightened sense of what sanitation is and i think there are some effects there i think i think it's you know a combination of things as i don't know if bowling resonates with gen z i think it's a great family thing i think they've reinvented it they for sure from what i've seen they've created an amazing atmosphere doing all the right things i think they're being a little over aggressive on what might be a declining market and I think they're they're overpaying. Uh, I don't love what they did with that lucky strike deal. Um, they got it at around one x revenue, so they got fourteen fairly high performing stores from uh, lanes, whatever you want to call it, um, that are probably that were doing on an average of six million each for total annual revenue of eighty four million. 
However, that was the trailing 12 months when they were looking at those numbers. That was a peak of demand as well. Mm. There was a lot of pent up demand when people could go out and do things again, right? You saw it across the right. hospitality industry, you saw it across airlines, you saw it across travel, all these things. That's declining. And from what I'm seeing overall in terms of consumer interest, no, bowling has not reached those 2019 levels again, and it has significantly declined in interest year over year. So their peak seasons uh, are definitely the holiday season. I think there's a lot of events. It's a fun corporate thing. My wife's corporate event on Monday night was at a bowling alley, uh, kind of a cooler one that they have here in downtown Toronto. So definitely still a thing. But I could tell you right now that overall interest in the United States has not reached its 2019 levels. And this acquisition strategy is leveraging two things that I really don't like. One, they upsized a debt vehicle that's up to $900 million. And two, um, did a sales leaseback agreement with a really big commercial landlord. So they actually offloaded uh, a bunch of their real estate assets. Because if you think about these things, they're probably buying them. They're buying them in you know, Midwest United States um, from someone who might have owned a family operated business, owned the building itself. Um, so they offloaded quite a bit of real estate for $432 million with the commitment to lease um, those back over over uh, 25 years. So they did get, you know, very favorable terms on a long lease. So there's no risk there. But, you know, what was once an asset is now a, a liability. So that's really interesting. And when you look at the assets themselves, they're very subject to the industry right? So it's like, what fixed assets do you have that are good to anyone else other than the bowling industry, which you just bought all of? So I think there's a, a lot that I don't love about this. Um, they're definitely a, a market leader. Um, they're looking to be the, the leader and own bowling in the United States. The only thing is, I just don't think it's a growing market unless they get involved in grassroots or something along those lines. So um, yeah, this debt service is a big issue for them now. It was 16% of revenue last quarter. Wow. Yeah. There's there's so much to unpack with this because, well, first off, 2019 being peak bowling, I, that is news to me. <laughs> Never would have guessed. Um, to something you said, Declan, where they have significantly grown revenue <clears throat> since 2020. Let's not forget 2020 was affected by COVID <clears throat> so that there was some level of disruption in, in that, that area. But nonetheless, they've made a pretty triumphant comeback. Mm -hmm. And I would say I'd be a lot more optimistic on the business model if it was more than just expanding bowling centers. For example, I was pitched uh, on a really cool operation in the States called Chicken and Pickle. I bet you can guess what sport that is related to, pickleball. Uh, they have table tennis there as well, and then there's food, hence the chicken angle. You know, that's right on trend with a, a absolutely growing sport of pickleball. So we're... You know, if Bolero was to have more of an interest in being the go-to in, let's call it experiential activity centers, yeah. or whatever you want to call it, then I my ears would perk up a little bit more. But nonetheless, I still think there's stuff to like. This leaseback deal is okay. really interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but I was flipping through their slide deck and they basically, I think you nailed it, Pete. They find these generally undervalued mm -hmm. uh, bowling centers that look quite comically old. They you know, spruce it up Bolero style, make it look in honesty, substantially more attractive. And then it sounds like they're, they more or less within three months flip it and then resell it through these leaseback programs. And it actually sounds like they're, it's a fairly profitable transaction for them. I won't comment more on that without doing further research, but it's, it's interesting. But the one thing I wonder though, 
And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that essentially the, the reverse of McDonald's strategy? Whereas isn't McDonald's in the business of holding the land? And you having to buy it from them for, for I think, and, for a lot of their locations. Yeah, they're still doing yeah. it. Yeah, and that's how they portray it in the McDonald's movie uh, on Netflix anyway. So I'm curious, could this be a short term excellent for cash flow? Long term, are they giving up key assets that could have brought a substantial amount of value? Maybe. I, I agree. If you ask me, do I want to be in the real estate game or bowling? I'm going to take real estate every time pretty much. I I, um, yeah. I like the business model again. I think it's great. Uh, 66% of their revenue is through very low variable costing. So you're talking about lane rentals, right. um, shoe rentals, and arcades is 66% of their revenue. The the remaining being, I'm sure there's some other fees with private rentals, which also don't, you know, uh, like private bookings and F&B. Um, also, I think F&B is not usually a great business because of how labor intensive it is. But guys, what's the expectations of service quality at a bowling alley? Like, <laughs> right. You're not, you're not, they're not getting a Michelin star anytime soon. So <laughs> I, I think they're relatively, uh, you know, if you're looking at that business model compared to an average, you know, fast casual restaurant or even rec room that Cineplex yeah. is doing here, um, their labor costs are probably way below that. Um, I think food is a nice added value. It's a nice way to get an extra 30% on your top line. And, and the average customer is like, yeah, I wasn't expecting a lot and this delivered. Mm -hmm. um, Here's a quick, just a quick little interruption here. So we've got, you know, kind of three different good perspectives uh, here, different age, range, age ranges. When was the last time each of you went bowling? Honestly, Not a good probably, sign. Probably a month, 2019, month ago. 2019. 2019. 2019. 2019. Yeah. yeah. Probably 2019. <laughs> Declan, what about you? I, I, I think we went a, a month ago. So it's a, uh, you know, it, it's think? not a, okay, so a recurring, think? recurring thing. <laughs> you think? But it's a, yeah. Around that anyways. <laughs> it was a good date night. It was a good date. Ten Jager bombs it? deep and Declan yeah. has no idea if he was bowling or yeah. pickleball or it was a, It was yeah. a blur. Hey? I, <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, I overall just don't think they had to be aggressive as they are. I think they could pace yeah. this out a little bit. I think they're trying to go for the entire U.S. market. It feels, and and I think they could be a little bit more patient. Um, they're the the interest on the nine hundred million um, isn't great. You know, it's a tad over eight percent. So Ouch. it's um, yeah, it's um, the overnight rate plus three hundred fifty basis points. So. Yeah, that's, um, yeah. you know, that that's going, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't think you need to be that aggressive about bowling unless there's another plan, which would be grassroots, get more people into bowling, get right. it more interesting, create leagues, create fun games. Top Golf has done an exceptional yeah. job of getting non-golfers to go and play different games at their range. Or even what you said, Kev, like, I mean, I don't know how hard it would be to add a pickleball court outside in the parking lot, add three right. courts and get people to rent it. It's the fastest growing sport in North America. So... That would be uh, interesting. Maybe as we well. do an activist uh, activist deal, and we get get one of us on the board and push for pickleball. I don't know. <laughs> I think they should hire you right now as a kind of an advisor. That was a brilliant idea um, because you. overall, I'm from what I'm seeing in overall interest and search volume for their locations. Their main website they they had they are the three biggest brands right now um, that they have kind of on a central site, and from what I'm seeing. Um, they are going to most definitely miss uh, their targets in the next quarter, which is their biggest one. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of my, my 
best guesstimation. I'm seeing what the analysts are saying. They predicted uh, in their last um, you know, annual report, I think they're June 30th year end. So they predicted uh, between a 10 to 15% increase in revenue. That includes acquisitions. So I'm seeing same store revenue as dropping year over year. Yeah, that sounds about right. Interesting. Um, Declan, yeah. any final thoughts on Bolero? Yeah, I think like just to echo uh, Pete's point, you know, how sustainable is this moat? It's kind of my big hesitancy towards this is uh, is bowling something or just entertainment in general, um, something that they can really capture and own as a market. There, there's a lot of options out there, and a lot of competitors competing in di- and offering different products. So. Um, that's that's always going to be a hesitancy of mine in the long run and then you know just in terms of the acquisitions um it, it's going to take some time to realize whether the the management team got over aggressive with these buys um but that being said you know again their their history and so far like as as a business uh, they've been able to prove that they've been smart uh, with their investment and capital allocation decisions. So you always have to give merit to that because, um, you know, any time a business can generate a uh, return on equity, um, again, above like 10% is, is a good sign. And for them to be doing 78% mm. in the last year and, and even in the year prior, it did well. Um, I don't have the exact number here. I can't remember, but, um, that, that's the thing is, ultimately if you're creating that return um that should reflect in the stock price and then again if the business is undervalued as say like simply wall street says well then there's a potential opportunity there as well so i don't think it's a terrible business and management has done a good job so far um but again how how sustainable is bowling and entertainment that that is really where uh i would hesitate to buy this at least without doing further research yeah I don't think it's going anywhere. I think bowling's great. I think, you know, your comment of saying time will tell if the, they were too aggressive. I think we're going to see it on the next quarterly earnings that they were, that played mm-hmm. a little too aggressive. Um, I, I think if they had paced this out a little bit more uh, without trying to buy all of this right now, I would have been all over it. I'm like, wow, pretty interesting to get in the bowling market. It's uh, There's literally very little variable cost to it. Um, mm-hmm. how often do you have to do repairs and maintenance on bowling lanes? I mean, they look like they're built to take a beating. I, <laughs> you know, they get 30 million customers a year. That's no joke. The wow. problem is they only spend between 35 and 40 bucks per head. You know, that's, yeah. it's okay. I think there's mm-hmm. other businesses where you can get, a, if you know, you're looking at these B2C businesses, you could probably get a little bit more and more often, but, uh, yeah, I, I would say, it, it had potential. I feel like management overplayed their hand here and got a little bit too aggressive. Mm-hmm. I think I'd echo a lot of your thoughts and, and my kind of final thoughts on this is it's a stock where I'm, after what I've seen, I'm virtually hovering over the buy button, but I'm not clicking it because yeah. I like a lot. I like 80, 85% of what I've seen. I think I'd be more excited if, you know, to your point, Pete, if they weren't so aggressive with acquisitions and B, if they were to have some non-bowling plan, Mm -hmm. rolling up some other growth sport or indoor activity, whatever that may be. I think with those two things, I would click the buy button without them. I'd be cautiously on the, on the sidelines 
but watching close. Mm-hmm. This is a stock I'm going to I'm going to keep following these guys, and I, I look forward to bringing them up again in the future. Yeah. Yeah. So Bolero. So we covered a lot today. Uh, bowling to cryptocurrency to satellite and 5G. We covered a lot today. Um, these are some cool stocks. I'm looking forward to coming up. Uh, sorry, coming circling back on these and seeing how they've done. But I think we're going to wrap it up there for today. I'm very satisfied. So this is from me, Kevin Matheson, Declan O'Flaherty, Peter Pilarchio. This is Beyond the Edge episode number six. Thank you guys for tuning in. Like and subscribe if you haven't already. We're dropping this episode every Sunday. So tune back in and let us know what you want to chat about. Boys, thanks for joining.